Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday, and it is September the 20th, 2019, and it's uh, great to join you. I thank you for uh, tuning in and joining me. Uh, those of you familiar with me, familiar with the program, know who I am. You know what I'm about. I'm a former, uh, retired, actually, senior special agent with the former Immigration and Naturalization Service. Spent 30 years with that agency that was sliced, diced, basically mutilated. Uh, when the Department of Homeland Security, or as I call it, the Department of Homeland Surrender, was created by the Bush administration in the wake of the terror attacks of 9-11. And we just observed the 18th anniversary of that horrendous attack, that horrific attack, that killed uh, arguably tens of thousands. We hear the 3,000 number, but we seem to be forgetting how many people have since died and are dying and have been made grievously ill by their exposure to the toxins Uh, on that awful day uh, that, in my judgment, could have been prevented. The immigration system failed, and it failed many times before. And on that day, it failed spectacularly, not just on that day, but in the run-up to the attacks of 9-11. And indeed, the 9-11 Commission, to which I provided testimony, made it abundantly clear that 9-11 couldn't have happened if immigration had done its job. So my mission ever since those attacks has been to provide my expertise, my perspectives as an immigration insider, to provide the information that the mainstream media increasingly refuses to provide to the American people. It wasn't always the case. Right after 9-11, I was averaging 15 to 20 television interviews per month on all the major networks, including, believe it or not, MSNBC, NBC, ABC, CNN, they're missing in action. Fox News still has me on on occasion, but the other news outlets, so-called, don't have anyone on with real-world immigration experience. And so that's the reason for my program. I hope you find it interesting. I sometimes go off into other areas, but my primary focus has been on the impact of immigration failures and a wide variety of issues, because immigration isn't a single issue, but a singular issue, because you'd be hard-pressed to find any significant threat or challenge we face today that isn't getting hammered because America has refused, not unable to, but has refused to secure its borders against illegal entry by aliens who refuse to be inspected. They're obviously hiding something. It may simply be that they want to work illegally, which creates enough problems. But we're also talking about fugitives, gang members, drug traffickers, terrorists, You name it, and the immigration laws are designed to keep out those folks, those aliens, who pose a threat to public health, public safety, national security, and the livelihoods of Americans. How anybody could be opposed to it blows my mind. But we live in a bizarre era where people are easily stampeded between social media and the mainstream media, which increasingly has become akin to the Ministry of Truth, so-called, in 1984. There's nothing politically correct about this. This is purely about obfuscating the truth and downright lying to create a fake narrative that too many people have decided to buy into. I, I was just looking at you know, 4 million people around the world demonstrating because of their concerns about climate change. Well, the climate always has changed. It changed before the human species first appeared on the earth, and I suspect it will continue to change long after we're gone. Climate change is inevitable. 
It is cyclical. We've had ice ages and thawed out and more ice ages, and again, before people came to the planet. Now, that's not to say that I don't think we shouldn't clean up our act. We should. We have really made a disgusting mess out of the environment, and we're paying a price, illness and and you name it and so forth. But we're running around like chickens without heads, at least some of us, Um, You know, the sky is falling without looking at the fact that there are other scientists of at least equal credibility to the ones that the the climate um, folks um, are are following. Well, there's another side to that story that the media won't cover. And if you dig around on the Internet, you could find people with PhDs who held high positions in government as meteorologists and climatologists who disagree. But the other side of the story never gets out. And the same thing has happened to immigration. In fact, if you take a position of advocacy for immigration enforcement, honest journalists should refer to those of us, and myself included, as being advocates for immigration enforcement, pro-enforcement. You know, the abortion debate, pro-life, pro-choice. When you're labeled anti-anything, you've been put at the base of a very tall mountain, that's been slathered with grease and lots of luck trying to overcome that mountain that they've put in front of you. And when you take a position of advocacy for secure borders and effective enforcement of our immigration laws, which have absolutely nothing to do with race, religion, or ethnicity, I told you what the grounds are. In fact, if you don't believe it, go to Title Eight, United States Code, Section 1182. Go to my articles. The links are there. You can see the section of law, and it lays it out, who we're trying to keep out has nothing to do with skin color, race, religion, ethnicity. In point of fact, if our laws did make that distinction, I could not have enforced those laws for 30 minutes, let alone 30 years. But if you take that position of advocacy, they don't call you pro-enforcement, which is what they should call you. They call you anti-immigrants. Now understand something. The immigration laws, the laws that I enforced and administered for 30 years, Years not only tell us who to keep out, but who to let in. Our immigration laws make America the most welcoming country on the planet. Last year, we admitted well over a million new lawful immigrants in accordance with the laws that I support. So how in the world are you anti-immigrant when under those very same laws, we admit tens of millions of temporary alien visitors, not immigrants, and well over a million lawful immigrants each and every year. But if you support those laws, you're labeled anti-immigrant, not pro-enforcement. If you want anarchy in the immigration system, which results in gang members from all over the world, not just Latin America, the Russian mob, Asian organized crime, the IRA, the Italian mob, Israeli organized crime, the Jamaican drug posses, I've arrested individuals from all the above. And, and, and so... By allowing our borders to be open and not having resources to enforce the laws, those violent thugs wind up setting up shop in the immigrant communities among the people that come from the same countries or regions of the world from which they come from. You know, we like to live among people who speak the same language, eat the same food, share certain traditions. It's also a good embedding tactic. If you're the only black guy in a white neighborhood, you stand out. If you're the only white guy in a black neighborhood, you stand out. So if you're a black guy in a black neighborhood, you're just another inhabitant of that neighborhood, you see. And the same thing holds true for fugitives and criminals and terrorists and so forth. And the other advantage, of course, is that because these are transnationals, meaning they operate in more than one country, The criminals are in the position to threaten immigrants in the United States with violence being perpetrated against their family members back in their home country if they don't cooperate. You know, talk to the police. Your sister's going to disappear. Don't take this package to my friend in Chicago. Your mother's going to disappear. This goes on all the time. So when you resist enforcing the laws, when you create sanctuary cities, there's nothing sanctuary there. You know, when you think of sanctuaries, you think of places of security and serenity. There is no security and serenity in sanctuary cities. They are magnet cities for fugitives, criminals, and so forth. And yet the media will refer to anybody who wants immigration anarchy as being pro-immigrant, 
pro-immigrant. The immigrants suffer the worst because of this. But the media flips it upside down. So if you want secure borders, you're anti-immigrant. If you want immigration anarchy, you're pro-immigrant. And then if you're anti-immigrant, well, then obviously you're a xenophobe and a racist and a bigot, and the list goes on. What's incredible is that so many people fall for the madness. So many people fall for the madness. And, and before we get into the stories that I really want to cover, because we're going to take a hard look at the nexus between immigration and terrorism, I just want you to think about something. Think about it over the weekend. Maybe think about it beyond the weekend. Um, I'm fortunate that I'm invited to be a guest on certain programs regularly. One of those is my friend Bobby Gunther Walsh, who does a show out of Pennsylvania. And, and, and so Gunther asked me a question the last time I was on his program, and he said, Mike, are our elected officials civil servants, or should they be? And here's what I told him, and I want you to think about this. My answer is no, they're not. You know, there's a saying in business that the customer is always right. When you have a company and you sell cars, let's say, the Ford Motor Company produced the Edsel. Nobody bought it. The Ford Motor Company said, well, if the public isn't buying it, we're going to stop producing it because we need to sell cars. We're not going to sell a vehicle that nobody wants to buy. We'd go out of business, okay? Well, the same thing is supposed to happen in a democratic republic. The people, that's where the word, you know, demo comes from, uh, you know, the people. Democracy, democracy is the idea that the people have the voice in the government. So it's clear to everybody, everybody that Donald Trump won the election because many, many, many Americans are upset about open borders and immigration anarchy. He promised to secure the borders. Of course, there's a lot more to it, as we'll see this evening, than just the Mexican border. That's foolish. You know, we're a nation of 50 border states. But immigration drove the campaign. And the American people made it clear to everybody that there was real concern that we've let in the gangs and the drugs and the terrorists and competition for American jobs. Not a good situation, obviously. In the good old days, both political parties would look at the outcome of the election and they'd say, well, the American people clearly want effective immigration law enforcement. If we want to win the next election, we got to give the people what they want, right? The customer is always right. Give the people what they want and we will be successful, you would think. And look what's happened. If you dare suggest that we secure the borders and enforce our laws fairly but effectively, you will be attacked by the politicians, not represented, not even ignored. You will likely be attacked. And it happened to me at a congressional hearing with the late Arlen Specter. I was testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee on a hearing about immigration. And before Specter asked me to provide my testimony, he made a statement about how there are those people who suffer from exophobia. I kid you not. And then he corrected himself and said xenophobia. For that split second, I almost laughed out loud, thinking that perhaps the senator thought I was afraid of the letter X. I've never in my life seen a situation like that. You take a position of advocacy for law enforcement, and you are attacked, you are bullied, you are accused, you are assailed. That's not how a democracy works. That's called tyranny. That's called tyranny. The American people are clear. They want the laws enforced. And, and the Democrats, who, by the way, used to be the strongest supporters for effective immigration enforcement, because they used to stand behind American workers, which is why I'm registered as a Democrat. My dad was a construction worker. He was a tradesman, my biggest hero next to my mom. Those guys, I'll tell you, I grew up on those construction jobs. Uh, there's no job that was ever too dirty, too backbreaking, or too dangerous, or too difficult. They'd look at any job, those tradesmen, and they'd go out there because they, uh, they were really gutsy characters who were happy to do an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. That's how I became a Democrat. The Democrats today are not the Democrats of my parents' era when I was growing up. These Democrats are thrilled to destroy wages, 
they want a $15 an hour minimum wage, but they don't want to talk about how the, this massive influx of foreign workers has driven wages through the floor. The meatpacking industry back in the 80s was paying close to $20 an hour, 18 to 20 an hour. Today they're paying 11 an hour, and the Democrats are so magnanimous, they say, well, it should be, 20, it should be 15 an hour. If it wasn't for the massive influx of illegal alien workers and foreign workers, the people in the meatpacking industry right now would probably be earning $30 an hour. And the Democrats want you to believe that they're pro-labor. The Republicans have always been about cheap labor and profits for, for companies and so forth. They represented business owners, which is fine. This is America. You have two sides of labor management. That's what it is, labor and management. You're either a boss or you're a worker. The businessman wants to get the cheapest labor possible, just like when you go buy a car. You want to pay the least for the car, and the salesman wants to get the most out of your pocket. There's a balance that has to be struck, and when there is a balance, you make a deal. Well, the Democrats have stepped away from the average American worker, and the consequence has been a disaster. That's why purchasing power went through the floorboards and homelessness is up all over the United States. But the politicians have been bought and paid for by the globalists. And let's remember that, as I'd like to point out, the immigration system has become a delivery system, delivering an unlimited supply of cheap, exploitable labor, nothing compassionate about that, an unlimited supply of foreign tourists and foreign students, including students who want to hurt us. And I wrote about that uh, for an article that I hope Front Page will be publishing in the next couple of days. An unlimited supply, this is really significant, of clients for immigration law firms. And let's remember, you've got attorneys on both sides of the aisle. That's what the immigration system has become, folks. Not something that's helping the average American or national security. So now, um, I, I want to turn to this, but before I do, there's one final point that I have to make. The way that the narrative has flipped, um, I've probably mentioned it recently, but uh, I'll mention it again. In March of 2002, six months to the day after the terror attacks of 9-11, it was discovered that two of the dead terrorists who participated in the attack, including Mohammed Atta, the ringleader, had been granted authorization to attend flight school in Florida six months after the attacks. So by then, the whole world knew that, A, they were terrorists, and B, they were dead. The company that was hired by immigration to do the, the paperwork and send out the correspondence screwed up and sent out letters of authorization to two dead terrorists. This is another one of those things that infuriates me. Why do we need to spend gazillions of dollars on contracts to private companies? And I always hear this from the conservatives. Well, you know, we got to privatize. Privatizing doesn't do anything except reward people who make campaign contributions for the most part. Yes, there are some areas where you do have to privatize. If you want to hire a computer programmer or somebody who makes a lot more money than, than the scale would generally permit in government, then you may have to go to a subcontractor who can hire people at, at the right pay rate. That does happen. But for the most part, these subcontracts are simply a way of rewarding companies that do business uh, with, with various politicians. And, and, you know, lots of luck picking out who's who and what's what. But anyway, on that day of, of the hearing that followed that discovery, I, I was invited to testify before uh, a hearing that was conducted on that very issue. And, and so I did testify. And everybody was crystal clear that there was a clear nexus between immigration and the terrorists. They were admitted into the United States. They came as students. They claimed political asylum. Some, some terrorists were granted amnesty under the Reagan uh, administration for the 93 bombing. So everyone understood that immigration permeated this whole mess. A couple of years later, I've been before, I think we're up to 17 congressional hearings. I doubt I'll be getting any more invitations. I've succeeded in infuriating everybody from everywhere by telling the truth. What a novel thought. But about two or three years later, Sheila Jackson Lee, who had invited me to testify at that hearing about Muhammad Atta and Malwin al-Shehi, the two dead students, two dead terrorists, in the middle of my testimony said, Mr. Cutler, there is no nexus between immigration and terrorism. It was a jaw-dropping statement, and increasingly you see that. Immigration has nothing to do with terrorism. Immigration has nothing to do with terrorism. 
They want everybody to forget that immigration was the problem. You know, when there's a major crime, there's a burglary, there's a murder, in come the crime scene uh, specialists, and they dust for fingerprints, and they look around. And what they try to figure out is how did the criminal get access to the building? How did they get into that house that they burglarized? How did they get into that factory where the crime was committed? Did they jimmy the door? Did they break a window? Was it an inside job? Were they working for the company? How did they get in? How did they happen to be there? Very important part of any investigation. The 9-11 Commission did the same sort of thing. How did the terrorists get into the United States so they could launch the attack? And again and again and again, various elements of the immigration system had been shown to be disastrous, non-functional, dysfunctional. Clearly, immigration was the problem. Therefore, effective immigration law enforcement can be the solution. And now the politicians want America to develop amnesia. Forget about immigration. It has nothing to do with terrorism. Folks, it was at the root ability of the terrorists to attack us. The 9-11 Commission was crystal clear. And by the way, with all the talk about 9-11 and all the programs that were on, did you, have you seen any politician referencing the 9-11 Commission report? Why not? Because if they did, and it, I thought it could have been stronger in some cases, it would be clear. And what's so remarkable was that NBC News, about four or five years after 9-11, complained that the 9-11 Commission didn't go into enough detail in the report about identity theft. There was only 10 pages dedicated to it. NBC, MSNBC, said, wow, this is a big issue. Why did they only give it 10 pages in the 9-11 Commission report? There was actually an article published. I have the link. You can see the article. It blows your mind. This was around 2004. Today, I guarantee you, you're not going to hear that on the networks. Now, we've got to connect dots, and we're living in a very perilous era. And if you've been following the news, you know the situation that currently exists between the United States and Iran because of Iran's nuclear aspirations. Um, The Trump administration came into office and said, we're undoing the deal made by the Obama administration because it virtually guarantees that Iran will get nuclear weapons. It's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. That's not acceptable. Iran is the greatest state sponsor of terrorism in the world. They are operating throughout Latin America through their proxy, Hezbollah. Hezbollah started in Lebanon but it is now funded and directed by Iran. And Iran has America in its sights. Be clear about this. Iran has been involved and Hezbollah has been involved in the killing of American soldiers. Go back to the bombing of the Marine barracks in Lebanon. Go back to all these attacks and all roads eventually lead to Tehran. And we know that for well over a decade, Iran has been sending their Quds forces, their shock troops directly from Tehran to Caracas, Venezuela, And I believe that Iran had a role to play in the destabilization of Venezuela. Venezuela used to be the wealthiest country in Latin America. It's now the poorest. This is the kind of madness we're talking about. Think about the Monroe Doctrine, where President James Monroe said that we're going to control the Western Hemisphere. We have enough trouble controlling our own damn borders because both parties want those open borders to placate the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, cheap labor and all that other profit to be made, the hell with lives. The hell with the 9-11 Commission that warned that border security is national security. So we know that there's a clear link between Hezbollah and, and um, the human traffickers. In, in fact, there was a statement. Let me see if I could quickly bring this up because I want to read this to you. Um, there was a congressional hearing on April 17, 2018, about a year and a half ago, by the House Subcommittee on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. The topic of the hearing was the state sponsors of terrorism and examination of Iran's global terrorism network. And one of the witnesses at that hearing, and he wasn't contradicted by the other witnesses. You know, sometimes you you could testify at a hearing, and I've been there, where one of the other witnesses vehemently argues, you know, no, 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 Mr. Cutler's getting it wrong, and you have a back and forth. Nobody disagreed with this witness. His name was Dr. Emmanuel Odolenge of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. And this is what he said in part. In recent years, Hezbollah's Latin American networks have also increasingly cooperated with violent drug cartels and criminal syndicates 
often with the assistance of local corrupt political elites. Cooperation includes laundering of drug money, arranging multi-ton shipments of cocaine to the United States and Europe, and directly distributing and selling illicit substances to distant markets. Proceeds from these activities finance Hezbollah's arms procurement, its terror activities overseas, its hold on Lebanon's political system, and its efforts both in Lebanon and overseas to keep the Shia's communities loyal to its cause and complicit in its endeavors. Well, that doesn't sound too exciting for America. I mean, it's a concern, but so now we get to the next paragraph. And this paragraph is the stuff of my nightmares. Listen carefully. This time, terror nexus, that is the cooperation between Hezbollah and the Latin American drug cartels, right? This toxic crime terror nexus is fueling both the rising threat of global jihadism and the collapse of law and order across Latin America, again, think about Venezuela and elsewhere, that is helping to drive drugs and people northwards into the United States. Think of the caravans, folks. It is thus sustaining Hezbollah's growing financial needs. It is helping Iran and Hezbollah consolidate a local constituency in multiple countries across Latin America. Now, stop and think about that. When you think Hezbollah, you think the Middle East. We're talking about Latin America here in the Western Hemisphere, okay? So it, it is um, helping to drive drugs and people northward into the United States. It's sustaining Hezbollah's growing financial needs, helping Iran and Hezbollah consolidate a local constituency in multiple countries across Latin America, thus facilitating their efforts to build safe havens for terrorists and a continent-wide terror infrastructure they could use to strike U.S. targets. Now, I have written several articles about how um, sleeper agents, members of Hezbollah, have been arrested in the United States. And on and on and on, we've seen this again and again and again, most recently yesterday, most recently Yesterday. By the way, for those of you not familiar with the term, and I know we use a lot of jargon, a sleeper agent, and I'm sure you've heard that. And when Mueller was the head of the FBI years ago, he testified about sleeper agents right after 9-11. I testified about sleeper agents when I went before Congress. A sleeper agent is basically an alien, a non-citizen, who in one way or another manages to enter the United States. It could be with a visa, it could be as a student, it could be running the border, it could be stowing away on a ship, it doesn't matter. It's about getting past our border. In battle, the enemy always seeks to get behind enemy lines. For the enemies of America, the enemy lines are the borders of the United States of America. So sleeper agents come into the United States, they don't act immediately, they set themselves up in a community. They go about their business very quietly. They're very polite. They never commit crimes. They don't spit on the sidewalk. They don't jaywalk. They don't argue with anybody. They don't tailgate. They want to be invisible. Somebody once described the ideal spy as that person who would not attract the attention of a waiter or waitress at a greasy spoon diner. You could say the same thing about an effective terrorist. The 9-11 Commission referred to that concept of hiding in plain sight as the embedding tactic used by the terrorists. They embed themselves. So when you have people saying, why would you arrest aliens unless they have serious criminal histories and sanctuaries decide, oh, we'll decide if that alien who's here illegally is really a bad guy because if they don't have a serious criminal history, we're not going to let anybody know about them. We want them here. I do not believe that any of the 19 hijackers had any arrests in the United States. On paper, they were as clean as fresh driven snow. They probably smiled at their neighbors, but in their mind, they were thinking, well, if I get the chance, you're dead and you're dead and you're dead and you're dead. And they smiled at everybody. Think back to when we had the problem with the Nazi war criminals, most of whom have since croaked. But remember when 60 Minutes did the stories decades ago? 
And the neighbor, naive fool, would say, oh, but he was such a nice man. He grew these beautiful roses in his front garden. I just loved to look at those roses. And when I walked my little puppy, he would come over and pet my dog and tell me to have a nice day. And then you find out that the guy had killed 28,000 people in some concentration camp and tortured the babies. But to evade the long arm of the law and justice, they play the game. They smile and they're polite and they're well-mannered. And meanwhile, they're the most outrageous monsters you could imagine. People are naive. He has such a nice smile. He couldn't possibly be a bad guy. No, bad guys all grimace and the music changes and the lighting changes because he's a bad guy. That's in the movies, not in real life. By the way, the idea uh, about the alien who just wants to do the jobs, you know what a terrorist does the day before he's, he or she is involved in an attack? He either goes to class or goes to the job where he's been working for the last couple of years. And some of these folks have been here for a very, very long time. Let's consider this case right now. And there was a press release issued yesterday, September the 19th. Here's the title. New Jersey man indicted to terrorist activities on behalf of Hezbollah's Islamic Jihad organization. The subtitle. Alexei Saab allegedly was trained by Hezbollah's external terrorist operations component in bomb-making and conducted intelligence gathering in New York City and elsewhere in support of Hezbollah's attack planning efforts. It is alleged that this guy also attempted to kill an Israeli agent overseas. He entered the United States two or three years after he hooked up with Hezbollah. He entered the United States for the first time according to publicly available information in the year 2000, a year before 9-11. He applied for U.S. citizenship in 2005, and in 2008, we made him an American citizen. And all the while, he was traveling back and forth to the Middle East, learning how to build bombs, and meanwhile, conducting surveillance all over the place, not just New York City, but he was in Boston, he was in Washington, scoping out bridges and tunnels and taking pictures and trying to figure out where to place explosives to bring down bridges and do other damage. He's also charged with marrying an alien woman, not because they were in love and living together, but as a way of getting her a green card and subsequent citizenship because she was also a co-conspirator. He got a visa to come to America. That's immigration. He applied for citizenship. That's immigration. He traveled in and out of our country, crossing our border. That's immigration. He married a woman and filed for her to get a green card, and then she went on and applied for citizenship. Again, immigration, 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 immigration. But there's no link between immigration and terrorism. Sheila Jackson Lee and all the others have told me that. Really? Really? So understand what the big lie is that we're hearing from everybody. Oh, immigration. No, 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 no. That has nothing to do with terrorism. Listen, if you can't get into the country, you can't carry out an act of terror. And this guy was involved with Hezbollah. Hezbollah is controlled by Iran. The United States today is imposing stricter financial sanctions against Iran. Iran is, has its back to the wall and animals that are backed into a corner strike out. Don't for a heartbeat think that there isn't a very real possibility that at some point the mullahs in Iran are going to call up their sleepers and wake them up and say it's time to get up. And we don't know how many there are. Peter King, who at the time was chairman of the House, um, uh, House Terrorism Subcommittee, one, that there were probably hundreds of sleeper agents in America from Iran back in the year 2012. It's now 2019. How many more are here? So you have this guy, and when you read through the allegations, you see that in defining how Hezbollah operated, the criminal complaint in federal court, all open source material available if you go to the website, and I'll be writing about this for both Dennis Michael Lynch, dmlnews.com, Team DML. I'm very happy to work with Dennis. We're just releasing now a documentary that I filmed with him. Uh, and 
Of course, Front Page Magazine, frontpagemag.com. What you're seeing is how more and more terrorists have been admitted into the United States, went to school in the United States, learned high-tech disciplines, science, technology, engineering, and math. And I talked about it last week. Diane Feinstein warned about this in 1998, permitting foreign students into the United States to study biology, nuclear physics, all these sciences is providing terrorists with the training they need to make weapons of mass destruction. And you had the president of Harvard University, and I just wrote about this for front page. I'm hoping it'll be posted uh, within the next two or three days, talking about how research, academic research needs to be open and collaborative. And when we try to deny entry to other people from other countries, we're hurting scientific research. Think about this. The Rosenbergs were executed for passing scientific research to the Russians. It was the research that resulted in the construction of the world's first nuclear weapons. Open and collaborative with our enemy. Every administration comes into office and promises that they will work at their best to create or to prevent nuclear proliferation. We want a policy of non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. And then we're teaching nuclear physics to citizens of countries that are our adversaries. What nuclear non-proliferation? How's it working out? How's it working out with North Korea, with Iran now trying to get nuclear weapons? How's that working out? This is lunacy. And yet, if you dare suggest that we be careful about who we let in and you be careful about who we give certain training to, you're a xenophobe, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're a hater, you get bullied, you get accused, you get verbally assaulted, maybe physically assaulted with our, our friend Antifa, the nonviolent fascists, some nonviolent. This is a very dangerous situation. This is an extremely dangerous situation. And we don't know what the breaking point is for Iran, at what point they decide they're going to act. The drone strike in Saudi Arabia against the oil refinery was an act of aggression that they're denying, but everyone's convinced they're behind it. They're coming out of that little buffer and saying, you know what, we're going to act. And, and that drone strike is a cautionary story for all of us. They are going operational to take aggressive actions against the people, against the countries that they see as their enemies, their adversaries. And I'm very much concerned that this could happen. There was another case, and you may well remember it. A couple of weeks ago, an American Airlines pilot from Iraq um, apparently went to an airplane that was being prepared for flight. They were going to fly from Florida to the Bahamas, <coughs> obviously over the water. The plane was, was all set to go, and there's a video of this mechanic going back to the airplane for all of seven minutes, and that's critical. And what he did was stick some styrofoam with super glue into a tube that gives information to the computers about airspeed and other critical data. And the computer then interprets that data to decide uh, what the angle of the nose of the airplane should be, what's known as angle of attack, a little single engine flying when I was a kid. And in fact, the B-2 bomber was brought down with one of its sensors malfunction, and the computer got faulty information. And these planes are all highly computerized. You know, it's not like the planes I flew with a single, you know, gas engine on the, on the nose turning a prop. These planes are all fly-by-wire. The computers translate the motions of the pilot on the controls with moving control surfaces and so forth. So the computer is the go-between. And if you give the computer faulty information or you give the pilot faulty information, you could have a crash. And when this guy was caught, his claim, oh, I'm just so angry about labor management and the, you know, we're not getting paid enough money. And, and, and so I did this hoping that the plane would have to go back and be repaired and I could make overtime. To me, the story doesn't wash. And it didn't wash then, and it certainly doesn't wash now because the news is now reporting. And you'll see the link if you go to um, my posting about my show tonight. What they, what they found was on this guy's cell phone, 
was an image, a video of some guy getting shot in the head and statements that he made about how God should kill all the non-Muslims. I mean, let's get real. It turns out that his brother was kidnapped by ISIS many years ago, is now an ISIS operative, apparently. And this guy's been sending money to to the Middle East. Um, It really is looking more and more like a terrorist attack. I'm not saying it's definite, but if you look at the allegations and you look at the facts that have been provided in the mainstream media, connecting dots, it doesn't paint a pretty picture. Now, if you're trying to sabotage an airplane so that the plane has to be fixed, you're not going to do it in a way that's going to be obvious to anybody that looks at the airplane that something was done that shouldn't have been done. Right? You, you take super glue and glue styrofoam to block a tube. When the plane goes back to the repair shop, you're going to see the styrofoam. You're going to say, what the hell is this? You know, if you're going to sabotage an airplane for that purpose, you, you tear a wire. You know, you cut a wire. You do something like that. You punch a hole in a fuel tank. And then you could say, oh, you know, mechanics, you know, some crooked mechanics on the highways have done this for years. You know, they stick a screwdriver into a hose and they say, oh, look at that. Your hose broke. I have to sell you a new hose and you're stuck in the middle of nowhere. So they, they put in a hose and they charge you God knows what for the hose and, you're, and you go in your merry way. And, you know, how can you accuse them when there's no way of proving how the hole came to be in the hose? Styrofoam doesn't jump up and stick itself into a tube with super glue. So this is a pretty easy thing to figure out that this was done intentionally, which leaves whoever did it open to prosecution, and as they're doing right now. Now, here's my belief. You tell me if this doesn't make sense. I truly believe that this piece of work was hoping that that airplane would crash into the ocean, and with it in the ocean, there goes the evidence of his skullduggery, you see. He wasn't planning for the plane to come back to be fixed. He was planning for the plane to go down with more than 150 people on board. That's the only logical conclusion that I can come to. And lo and behold, the pilots recognized there was a problem. The computer alerted them that they were getting faulty data, and that's how the discovery was made. And the fact that it was done in seven minutes, and it involved a piece of styrofoam, and it involved glue, super glue, this was planned out. This guy had it down in his mind. I'm going to get to the airplane. I'm going to open up this panel. I'm going to stick the styrofoam. I'm going to glue it. I'm going to close the panel. He was in and out in seven minutes. He has been a mechanic for American Airlines for something like 30 years. He's 60 years old. He came here as a 30-year-old. Is he a sleeper agent? I don't know. I don't know when he got his citizenship. I don't know enough to tell you what's really happening. All I can tell you is what concerns me. Now, here's what I don't understand, or what I'd like to know. You get on an airplane today, we're being strip searched. 95-year-old women in wheelchairs are being searched. Five-year-old little girls are being strip searched. All of this emphasis. Who is getting access to the airplanes on the ramp? How frequently are the people who have access to the airplanes have have the security clearance redone? Do they have the security clearance? God only knows. And both guys, the mechanic and the terrorist suspect who was arrested, both were naturalized citizens. Doesn't it call into question that maybe we're doing a lousy job of vetting people to apply for U.S. citizenship? You know, a chain is as strong as its weakest link. When I look at these two cases, and there are many, 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 many more of them, all you see are weak and non-existent links. And they create the charade of security at the airport. With, with all this nonsense, we're spending billions of dollars on TSA, 45,000 people at TSA, but we only have 6,000 ICE agents, and half of them aren't even doing immigration work. And during the political campaign season, almost none of them are because they're busy protecting the candidates because they back up Secret Service. We have no idea who's here. We're naturalizing hundreds of thousands of new citizens. And, you know, it's funny because the law requires that when an alien applies to citizenship, it's not enough to run fingerprints. This background check is silly. It's supposed to be a background investigation, meaning an agent is supposed to go out, knock on doors, and speak to people. They're supposed to conduct what's known as a good moral character investigation. 
We're naturalizing hundreds of thousands of new citizens every year. You have 6,000 ICE agents who are working, only half of them on immigration, so we're down to 3,000. And they're supposed to go after criminal aliens. They're supposed to arrest aliens who were, depo- who were deported and reentered illegally. They're supposed to conduct fraud investigations. They're supposed to work on task forces, such as the Joint Terrorism Task Force or the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, where I spent the last 10 years of my career. They're also supposed to go after the employers to make certain that they're abiding by our laws um, where it comes to uh, the hiring practices that they don't hire illegal aliens. With that workload, what's the likelihood that any interview, let alone a field investigation, is being done when people apply for U.S. citizenship? And the answer is between slim and none. Then here's another vulnerability that I discussed at a congressional hearing, and I got blown off. And I had an argument with Michael Chertoff about this. We both spoke at Chapman Law School about a decade ago. When aliens naturalize, they can change their name and become whoever they want to be, which is fine. You're starting your life over. You're becoming an American. You want your name to sound American. That's fine. But what we need to do is have the original name in the U.S. passport, and we don't do it. So you wind up with people coming to America, becoming U.S. citizens, changing their names, and their U.S. passport only reflects their new name. In essence, we have people putting themselves into their own witness protection program. It endangers our security. It endangers the security of our allies. And all that is necessary to fix this whole is to add the original name to the passport, and they won't do it. And Chertoff told me, Mike, you have no idea how political this is. How political it is to add a second name on a passport? That's political? We are being sold a bill of goods. We're being sold a three-legged racehorse. I can't believe how many Americans are buying that three-legged racehorse. And there are consequences. There are consequences. And you have American citizens out there who are drinking the Kool-Aid with not one but two straws and blindly accepting the notion that people such as myself who simply say, let's make certain that the immigration system protects national security, public safety, public health, and the jobs of Americans, that makes me a racist and a bigot. By the way, disturbing news bulletin, just before I went on tonight, two children in the Philippines were diagnosed with polio. Aliens running the border don't get inspected. What happens when aliens who run the border have a dangerous disease like polio and move into some community and other people then catch the disease? Ellis Island was a quarantine station. But if you make the suggestion that this exposes Americans to dangerous diseases, it endangers our children. Instead of being told how wonderful you're looking out for American kids, you get accused of being a monster. You get accused of being a monster for daring to suggest that we need to be careful not to let people into the United States who suffer from dangerous communicable diseases. But there was no problem attributing the measles outbreak to the Orthodox Jewish community because for some reason the Jews in those communities were against vaccinations. So they got beat up every day in the media, every day. Oh, these people refuse to be vaccinated. They won't let their kids be vaccinated. That was okay. Just don't dare talk about aliens who might come into the country and evade the inspections process conducted at ports of entry. Don't you dare talk about how we have to enforce the immigration laws because we're a country of immigrants. We've had movie after movie about people getting married. It's a nice little romantic comedy. Sandra Bullock was in one of those, uh, The Proposal. And then there was a movie with Depardieu, Green Card. And it's just a comedy. Oh, the couple meets and they get married so the person can get a green card. They don't really love each other. But by the end of the movie, they're jumping into bed with each other, and they really want to stay together forever and always. And they live happily ever after. Turning marriage fraud into a comedy. It's not a comedy. It's not a comedy. In fact, let me read to you something that comes from the 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel, if I can find it. 
Hopefully I can. <clears throat> this is on page 98, the 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel. Terrorists in the 1990s, as well as the September 11th hijackers, needed to find a way to stay in or embed themselves in the United States if their operational plans were to come to fruition. As already discussed, this could be accomplished legally by marrying an American citizen. Do you hear that, Sandra Bullock? Okay. Achieving temporary worker status or applying for asylum after entering. Think of all those asylum cases. So before I go on, I just want you to understand something. When aliens apply for asylum, even though they are not going to get asylum, they're not qualified, a couple things happen. First of all, the government is under a mandate to either approve the petition in a short period of time or at the very least provide those aliens with Social Security cards, with work authorization. So many of these aliens may well show up to the initial process so they are eligible for a Social Security card, and then they're in the wind and don't show up again when their application is denied. But the problem is that by overloading the system with millions of applications, the courts now, the immigration courts are backed up for years. It used to be you arrested an illegal alien and you put him before an immigration judge by the end of the week at the latest. Today, forget about it. You just wipe it off. And, And while they're here, they can engage in a marriage fraud. There's nobody to investigate these things, folks. You know, once in a while, there'll be an investigation done. Once in a while, somebody wins the $48 million lottery. It's that kind of a situation. And everybody knows they get away with it. And even if the application is denied, no one's looking to arrest them. I was an adjudications officer for a year on a pilot program where we interviewed the couple. And if it turned out they weren't living together, we locked up the alien and deported the alien by the end of the week. So the number of applications dropped drastically because suddenly – They knew if they lied to us, even if they weren't criminally prosecuted, they would be deported. They didn't want to run the risk. Today, it's a no-lose situation. The likelihood is, because of the pressure of moving the paper, they're going to get the green card. And even if they don't, they hide and nobody seeks because we have nobody to seek. So what do they lose? Nothing. What's the likelihood they win? Pretty good. Pretty good. You had terrorist after terrorist after terrorist after terrorist get green cards and citizenship. And if they had been investigated, it would have been obvious to everybody that they were involved with terrorism. No resources. And if you're under pressure to clear up the backlog of applications, and they are, the easiest way to get rid of an application is approve it. You can approve an application in 15 minutes and it goes away forever. Think about that. So this whole idea that we're going to overload the system with all these applications means that the applications that really should be scrutinized, perhaps the people who are terrorists, aren't being scrutinized because the system is overwhelmed. This is Lucy at the Bonbon factory on steroids. This is national security. Again, let's go back to what the 9-11 Commission staff report on terror travel, terrorist travel had to say. So they say that This can be accomplished legally by marrying an American citizen, achieving temporary worker status. By the way, DACA is such a case, also such a situation, (coughs) pardon me, or applying for asylum after entering. In many cases, the act of filing for an immigration benefit sufficed to permit the alien to remain in the country until the petition was adjudicated. Terrorists were free to conduct surveillance, coordinate operations, obtain and receive funding, go to school and learn English, make contacts in the United States, acquire necessary materials, and execute an attack. When you talk about the need to secure the Mexican border, and we're told, oh, that wall of hate, the wall is not designed to keep people out, folks. It isn't. It's not designed to keep a single alien out of the United States. All it's designed to do is to funnel everybody through a port of entry. It's like going to the bank and they have the velvet rope and you have to walk through the velvet rope until you eventually get to see the teller. That's all it is, is the equivalent of that velvet rope. It's not a velvet rope of hate any more than the wall isn't a wall of hate either. It's about making certain that people who come in are inspected, that they don't bring weapons in, that they don't bring narcotics into the United States. 
we're losing more people to drugs in America than we are to car accidents, certainly more than firearms. But nobody wants to talk about that. There was an attack in the mall in Chicago. I think it was an attack. No one seems to know anymore. But some guy drove an SUV through a mall in Chicago, which goes back to my point about motor vehicles and weapons. And yet we're giving driver's licenses to illegal aliens, and we can't verify who in the world they are. This is the lunacy that is being foisted on America by globalists who want to destroy the wage structure of American citizens. It's an anti-labor movement spearheaded by the Democrats who used to be the party of working Americans. It's a betrayal on a scale that I find unfathomable. And what really blows my mind is how American people are falling for the scam. When, Mer- when Madoff stole the money of the wealthy, uh, and which was shocking, you think, gee whiz, if a guy has amassed millions of dollars or a woman has amassed millions of dollars, they must be smart. Somehow we conned them. These politicians are worse than Madoff. Madoff wanted their money. These politicians don't care if they cost us our lives and the lives of our children and the futures of our children and our grandchildren. That is a level of theft and immorality that goes beyond outrageous, goes well beyond outrageous. And how many Americans are falling for the foolishness? You know, just as I started out talking about climate change, it's not that we shouldn't consider the possibilities, but don't follow anybody blindly. Question, question, question. The biggest return we get from the space probes that we've sent out into the solar system and beyond is the next set of questions, and we've become a country that questions nothing. We've become so polarized. There was a killing of a child in a high school, and most of the classmates, instead of trying to stop the violence, videotaped it. There was the story about this waitress who was killed in Queens, New York, decades ago and they said that everybody heard her blood curdling screams but nobody did anything they stayed in their apartments and nobody even called the police and they said how could people be so heartless that they didn't even call the cops it's gotten worse here you had these kids videotaping it there were lots of cameras with lots of videotape or whatever you want to call it recording the senseless murder of this kid by a knife being wielded by a classmate We lack empathy. We are too quick to fight with each other and see our neighbors as our enemy if we simply disagree with each other, rather than recognizing that if there's a true First Amendment, we're going to disagree with each other. It's a patriotic obligation to disagree, to challenge and question and discuss and debate the right to peaceable assemblage. That's at the heart of our democracy, and that's what's in danger right now. We're quick to line up on one side or the other. You know, it's the Bloods and the Crips, and we're going to go to war with each other because you and I might disagree. I have many friends that I don't agree with completely. Even I don't agree with myself when I look back at positions I've taken in the past. But there ought to be some civility. And more than anything, folks, there ought to be empathy, the ability to understand that other people may see things differently because their life experiences or their personal situations may be different. We've lost that ability, and it's not inconsequential. I I just want to read this other little bit before we run out of time. That same report, the 9-11 Commission staff report on terrorist travel, said this. In July 2001, the CIA warned of a possible link between human smugglers and terrorist groups, including Hamas, Hezbollah, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Indeed, there's evidence to suggest that since 1999, human smugglers have facilitated the travel of terrorists associated with more than a dozen extremist groups. With their global reach and connection to fraudulent document vendors and corrupt government officials, human smugglers clearly have the, quote, credentials necessary to aid terrorist travel. Shouldn't that create a strong enough incentive to secure the Mexican border when you consider that throughout Latin America, as I read to you before, We have a problem with Hezbollah operating with human traffickers and drug smugglers. We need to question what we're being told. We need to develop our critical thinking skills. And as Americans, we should be far more focused on those things that make us similar rather than those things that make us different. We live in a very perilous era. E pluribus unum needs to be more than a slogan that hangs on the walls of our government buildings. 
Indeed, we need to understand that the greatness of America comes from its great diversity, both its cultural as well as its ethnic diversity. There's no problem with being different, but we do need to be respectful and thoughtful and take a a more reasonable approach to trying to work out real solutions that are ultimately in the best interests of America and Americans. I thank you for joining me. I hope you have a wonderful weekend coming up. And please, folks, remember to get involved because democracy is not a spectator sport. Check out my articles at dmlnews.com and frontpagemag.com. And my own personal website, of course, is michaelcutler.net. See you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.